Well, it is almost the month of March, uh, which for all of you winter-weary countyites is not the end. <laughs> I think when I was growing up in Vermont, March was kind of the month when you finally saw winter start to lose its grip. And maybe that's true even up here, but maybe not. Maybe it's April more. Uh, but March is technically the month when spring is ushered in. March, I think, 21st or 20th, that's the first day of spring. Usually you can go out in a field and you can stick your ski pole and it just disappears into the snow at that time of year. It's still pretty deep. But things have changed, we know that. Uh, it's kind of a month without holidays otherwise, unless you count St. Patrick's Day. And so I think we tend to make more out of St. Patrick's Day than uh, is normal for such a holiday. But I can remember back when I used to live in California, I walked in to pick up one of my kids from kindergarten, and the walls of this school were just covered in shamrocks and leprechauns and pots of gold. I mean, they had this school decked out to the nines about over St. Patrick's Day, which is weird if you think about it. Uh, and some of the students asked in class... Who was St. Patrick? Why do we celebrate him? And I only know that this interaction happened because at the breakfast table, one of my children explained the, the teacher's answer. This poor public servant in California. <laughs> Why do we celebrate St. Patrick? This teacher said, because he freed slaves in Ireland. Guys, that's not historically accurate. It's not true. But why, why do we celebrate St. Patrick? Why do the Irish people celebrate him? Because he brought Christianity to Ireland. He brought the gospel. He brought the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to a people who were lost in bondage to sin and death. That's why St. Patrick is such a big thing to the Irish. Historically. Now, I do have to say this. When I heard my child say that is from a teacher, an educator, explaining the significance of the historical figure, St. Patrick, that he was like their Abraham Lincoln or something. In fact, he was a slave <laughs> who, was a, who escaped from slavery in Ireland and went back voluntarily to the place where he had been enslaved. But when I heard that explanation, I was filled with kind of a righteous indignation. I wanted to go find that teacher and have an actually filled conversation. Actually is the most annoying word in the English language. There's no doubt about it. Anybody who peppers actually into their conversation, you automatically dislike that person a little bit, don't you? But I kind of wanted to go find this teacher and have an actually filled conversation about who St. Patrick was. But I did not. I, I probably should have, but I didn't. But I do have to say this. I do have to say this, that teacher was in fact correct. I, I don't think this teacher knew how correct she was, but she was. 100% on point, St. Patrick freed slaves, loads of them. He should be celebrated for the fact that he freed slaves.
If she meant that St. Patrick helped to free human beings from their slavery to sin and death by introducing them to freedom in Christ, I doubt this is what she meant. But that is biblical language. St. Patrick did indeed come to Ireland to free slaves. I have to own that's true. Uh, This morning, our study of Psalm 107, the reason why I mention that story is because our study of Psalm 107 brings us to verses 10 through 16. Psalm 107 is, has become, to me personally, one of the most important psalms just to me. And if one of the great things about being a preacher and getting able to decide where we're going to spend time in God's Word is I can just totally go wherever I want. <laughs> and Psalm 107 is one of those psalms that I camp out in a great deal. And I'll tell you why. Psalm 107 is a psalm for any and all of us who are imperfect. More than imperfect, have maybe even significantly blown it at times. I don't know anything about some of you. Some of you I'm getting to know. I hope to get to know you better in the years ahead. But maybe there are people in the room today that I've never shaken hands with or had much of a conversation with. But I do know this about you. (laughs) If you're a human being... You have sinned, you have rebelled against God's word, you have at some time in your life moved in directions contrary to the will of God, and now what? That's true for me. I wish it weren't, I'm trying to live a life that's pleasing to God, but sometimes I blow it. And Psalm 107 is a psalm for people who cry out to God from distress therein, distress of their own making, of their own disobedience. And what will God say to them in that moment? I was sharing with a couple uh, this week that one of the bigger fights that my wife and I have ever had, we had a fight one night, and I was so upset after this fight. Don't act like you don't have fights in your marriage. I see, see all of you judging me. I got on my bike and I rode out, it was nighttime, and I was riding through the dark and I was going up a very steep hill and I got tired, so I turned onto a side street, but I never changed the gears on my bike and I was just cruising down this street when out of the darkness came a pit bull and it came to try and bite me and I tried to pedal away from it, but I'd never changed the gears, so my pedals just went And the pit bull came in and got caught up in the whirring pedals and stuff, and I just went like a big sack of meat right into the middle of the road. And I got up, and my bike was broken beyond repair. I couldn't ride it. And as I started to walk away, the dog, by the way, went and ran off into the dark. But as I walked away, I began to realize my collarbone was broken. And with each step, it hurt more and more and more. I limped my way to a restaurant, and I knocked on the door. They were closed for the night, but the workers were doing the dishes and stuff. And they came to the door, and they handed me nervously a cell phone out through the door. And I, who was I going to call? Sarah Tate. The only person I could call. Now, guys, I had just left my house. (laughs) as I'd sinned against that woman. It had been a a fight, an argument, 
and I had not been kind in the middle of that argument. But here I am now, in the dark, with a broken collarbone. I left the house because I was upset. She was so sweet. (laughs) She came and she picked me up. She arranged babysitters. She drove me to the hospital. She was so kind. Now, many of you in your relationship with God might be in something somewhat similar this morning. You you stopped up your ears when God was trying to talk to you, and now you're in trouble because of your wayward disobedience. You're mired in the consequences of your own sinful rebellion. And when God was trying to talk to you, you were going, nah, 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 I don't want to hear it. And now when you cry to him in your distress, what's he going to say? Is he going to say, you didn't listen to me? What's good for the goose is good for the gander, tit for tat. What's going to be that conversation with God? In Psalm 107, God wants you to know something really important about Him. He is going to say something clearly, unambiguously, forcefully, and that is altogether wonderful if you have strayed from the path that God told you you should go down. We come this morning to verses 10 through 16. Last week, we studied verses 4 through 9, where we learned about the amazing, steadfast love of God that brings us home. And now in these verses, I want to focus on the love that makes us free. It says, beginning in verse 10, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Why are they there? Verse 11 tells us. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Let's stop there for just a second. It says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. And why, again, do they find themselves in this miserable place? For they had rebelled against the words of God, spurned His counsel. And, of course, how many of us could say the same? At some point, you were confronted with a choice or some sinful longing, and you knew what was right. You knew what was right. You were not ignorant of what God had said in His Word. But you spurned his counsel and went in another direction instead. And that is exactly what is being depicted in these verses. That is what has happened to these people. And here's the amazing and hopeful thing that we see about our God in Psalm 107. Instead of there being no hope for such a person, the next thing we read is they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Guys, He's good even when you're not. His steadfast love endures forever, even when you're a fickle person who lives out your life in Christ and fits and starts. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Won't you join me in celebrating this amazing fact about who God is? Again, our God is not such a God as says to us, you made your bed, now lie in it. 
So whether you've wrecked your life with drugs, with sexual immorality, with dishonesty, theft, crimes, or any of a million ways that involved rebelling against God's word and spurning his counsel, you can see from Psalm 107 that those things do not disqualify you from God's rescue. 100%, we've all blown it. Big ways, small ways. And maybe today you find yourself in trouble precisely because of the path you went down in direct contradiction to what you knew God's counsel would have been or was in His Word. And now you're in this spot and you're hurting and broken and it's all wrong. You don't have a time machine. You can't go back and change what has been. But what are you going to do now? Psalm 107 is God saying to you, you can, you're not disqualified from me showing up in the middle of your distress. When you wouldn't listen to me, that doesn't mean I won't listen to you when you cry out to me. What an amazing God. The people being described in verses 10 through 16 got themselves into their situations by rejecting what God said in his word. They heard it, they knew it, they understood it, but they did not heed God's word. And so it's kind of shocking that even though they didn't pay any attention to God when he was speaking to them, that he would now hear their cry of distress when they call out to him. Verses 13 through 16, let's read these. This is the response. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. This psalm about people who sought to be free of God only to find themselves slaves and shackles and prisoners behind bars of iron. That's who this psalm is about. This psalm is about people who said to God, I want to be free from you, only to find themselves slaves in a much worse predicament. And so then they cry out to God. More than this psalm being about that kind of person, however, it is primarily about the God who bursts their bonds, shatters the doors, and cuts the the bars in two. It's a celebration of the love that makes us free. And really, Christians talk a lot about being free in Christ. But to many non-believers, they see life in Christ as the very opposite of freedom, don't they? From their perspective, Christians have a Lord, and He's a pretty demanding one at that. They think, how would I be free if I became a Christian? If you become a Christian, then you must submit to the will of your Lord, right? And doesn't the Bible have a bunch of rules in it? On your drive over here today, if you were behind cars, how many of those cars do you think were going to church? Maybe some, maybe even most, I don't know. But many were not planning there. They were off on other adventures. This is their day off, probably. 
and they were driving somewhere to do something day offy. But you got up this morning and you took a shower, some of you. <laughs> you got dressed and you drove over here. And you're giving this time. Do you know how rare that is? Do you know how incredibly generous that is of you to come and do this this morning? Americans, by and large, have money. It's not true for all of us, especially not relatively within our own culture. You might be relatively poor as an American, but generally Americans have disposable income compared to the rest of the world. What Americans don't have is time. We're a resource-rich, time-poor people. And we're time poor because we buy lots of stuff and we have to use it. On your day off, you have to use your toy that you spent all that money on. you got to do all this stuff. We're very busy as a people. You're time poor. But you guys have given some prime real estate this morning in your schedule to come and be here. I feel great burden not to waste your time this morning, which is why I wrote my sermon. <laughs> But it is significant that you're here. That is not a small offering that you would give such a huge chunk of a Sunday morning to come to church. But your friends think that's not free. That's not being free. You have to go to church. They think I'm sorry. But people who have to do whatever their Lord says and who have all these rules they have to live under and who have to give up things even if they secretly still want them, they cannot be called free. How are you free, Christian? Now we know, if you've been walking with Jesus, that you are not compelled to do these things out of duty or fear of punishment. God is not honored by that kind of a life. Our God is not honored and in fact, he expressly condemns in his word living a life of religious devotion out of dry, unfeeling duty. That's legalism. And he himself has taken punishment off the table. If you're a Christian today and you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation and you rightly understand what Jesus has done for you, you should not have fear of punishment. The Bible says that perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. All of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus. All of it. And if you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation today, the promise of Romans 8.1 belongs to you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I hope that your presence here this morning, I hope that all of your righteous living and your law-keeping is not motivated from duty or fear that God will cast you off. If that's true, you have not yet grown. I think you're growing, probably. You're, you're arriving at a place of greater Christian maturity and understanding of the gospel, but that is not where God would want you to live out your days in relationship to Him. There is a deeper truth here. There is one thing that motivates a Christian to live the way that they do. It's a one-word answer, and it's love. We delight in doing the will of our Father. I love who He is, and I want to be like Him. In becoming a Christian, 
You do not have to decide between happiness and Jesus. That would be a loss of freedom. No, we have found happiness in Jesus. I'm free in Christ because He is what I want. I have found the best, the fullest, the deepest, the longest lasting happiness in Christ. And in fact, it's a happiness that will endure 10,000 years from now in glory. But we're surrounded by the tragic, the tragedy of people who are trading what is eternal for what is temporary. It's an absolute tragedy to witness. But it is playing out in the hearts and minds of people all around us. I don't think most non-Christians understand that about the gospel and Christianity. They think a Christian is less free than they are. But Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. You might remember if you know your Bibles well, and it's okay if you don't, if you're still growing in your awareness of what the Bible says. But there's a scene in the Bible in Luke 4 where Jesus, during the days of his earthly ministry, goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he's kind of become a celebrity. He's kind of a big deal, especially there in his little hometown. And so when he comes to synagogue, they want to honor him in some way, recognize what's happening with him. And so they give him the... um, the exciting place of being the one who would read the scriptures in the synagogue on that Sabbath day. And he got up and he reads from the book of Isaiah. It says, The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then when he sits back down and everybody's looking at him, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Captives set free. This is why he came. In Psalm 107, 10 through 16, again, describes God as the great shatterer of doors, the cutter of bars, the one who just takes your shackles and tears them apart. He is the God who makes us free. But I want to be very clear about what we mean when we say we're free in Christ. Uh, In 1978, a movie came out called Midnight Express. It was about a true story, based on a true story, about Billy Hayes, an American who was caught dealing hashish in Turkey. He went to a Turkish prison and had just a truly horrific time in that Turkish prison. And when he was finally released, uh, the first thing he said when he landed in the United States and the crush of reporters met him at the airport We just said, I'm free. (laughs) I'm free. Now, what did he mean? Did he mean he was free from the laws of gravity? No, certainly not. All the natural laws that govern all of us still applied to him. He was not free from that. Does he really think he's free from the laws of the United States? 
No, not that either. He still has to pay taxes and stop at stop signs. He can't sell drugs here any more than he could do it in Turkey. What does he mean he's free? Does he, does he think he can do anything he wants? No, obviously what he meant was I'm out of the terrible, horrible place where I was. I'm out from underneath the consequences of my lawless behavior. I'm free from prison. He did not mean that he's generally free. He's autonomous from any external control or authority. God is not saying, when he says you're free in Christ, he is not saying you are a little God who is now autonomous and answerable only to yourself, uninfluenced by anything or anybody external to yourself. Of course he's not saying that. Even in the perfection of the garden, Adam and Eve didn't have that kind of freedom. There were rules there that they had to follow. So when the Bible calls us to celebrate the freedom that we enjoy in Christ, it is not saying that we are now our own masters, like wolves that have been released back into the wild. No, we're more like dogs who have been released from the pound into the care of a loving master. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 puts it precisely that way. You are not your own, you were bought at a price. So if I'm not my own and I was bought like a slave, in what sense am I free? Is the Bible talking out of both sides of its mouth? Which is it? Am I free or am I bought? Let's spend some time thinking about this. I feel like I'm just going around and around in circles here, like a cat chasing his tail. I hope I'm not wasting your time. I know I'm not. Bear with me. We'll get there. If you're not free in a general sense, and really that 1 Corinthians passage and others like it make that abundantly clear, in what sense are we free? That's really the question. It, it, it means, yes, in part, that we've been freed from a horrible place. And we've been freed so that we never have to go back there again. That is certainly part of it. That is part of the truth of what it means to be free in Christ. But our non-Christian friends are, in a way, right. We are not free in the way that they imagine. We are slaves. Their biggest problem is not that they misunderstand Jesus and his demands although they certainly do misunderstand that too. Their biggest problem is that they misunderstand themselves. They imagine that they are in a state of freedom right now and that you, by submitting to the lordship of Christ, have become a slave. They don't necessarily, well, they do misunderstand things between you and Jesus. But their deeper understanding is that they profoundly do not understand the state that they're living in. I've used this example before, and if you've been sitting here at State Road, you've heard this before. But I want you to imagine with me that you walked out on a dock, you own a boat, and that boat became self-aware. I know it's a silly illustration, but bear with me. 
The boat was sentient, self-aware, living, and as you walked up to the boat you own, the boat said, hey, I am sick and tired of being your boat. You leave me tied up to this dock for days. You don't pay any attention to me, and then when you show up, it's all what you want to do. You take me here and there, and then when you're done with me, you tie me up, and I'm sick and tired of sitting here for days, weeks, months. I want to be free, the boat says. And so you have pity on your boat, you untie it from the dock, and you push it free. Is the boat free? No. It is now a slave to the wind and the waves. It's pushed along by other forces. Before it was your boat, and you paid to have it repaired when it needed it, you painted it, you cleaned it, you tied it up, you took care of it, you registered it, whatever. But now it's demanded to be free from you, it doesn't want a captain anymore. So you give it its freedom, you give it its release, you shove it free into the lake or the ocean or whatever, and then instantly it belongs to the wind and the waves. And it's driven along, not where it wants to go, but wherever the wind and the waves take it until it runs aground or goes out to sea and gets swamped and sunk. The fib that people live with in the world today is that they imagine that they are free when in fact they are already slaves. They are driven along by the currents of their own sinful passions and longings. They live out of their own sinful nature. They are slaves to it. Their inner world is filled with all these misshapen longings, disordered desires, and they are governed by them. They're driven by them straight onto the rocks. And so when Jesus says, for freedom, Christ has set you free, he has set before you life and death. He has said you have a free choice, you're a free moral agent. You will be a slave, but you can choose your master. You can serve one who loves you, who will seek your best who gave his life for you, or you can serve one who will celebrate your shipwreck. These are the two choices. So our non-Christian friends, when they look at the Christian life and they say, you love this Jesus, you're following him, but you're not free, I am. I can do whatever I want. Part of us as Christians has to push back and say, I am doing what I want. I love Jesus. I love this. Jesus isn't holding a whammy stick over my head saying, you do what I say or I'm going to beat you. In fact, he's taken that completely off the table and I believe him. And I'm not driven to do these things out of duty or legalism or any such thing. I love my God. I celebrate my relationship with him. I came to him as a slave and he made me his son. <laughs> That's the story of the prodigal son, right? He comes back to his dad, very Psalm 107, I blew it, I dishonored you, I spurned your counsel, I went away, I've made an absolute shipwreck of this thing, let me just be a slave in your household. And he says, son, welcome home. What a master. 
What a glorious thing. And what a disastrous thing that I would ever choose any other way. The writers of the New Testament declared and celebrated their status as slaves of Christ. Paul opens his letter to the Romans by referring to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. Same in his letter to Titus. One of the most impressive ones is where James, the little brother of Jesus, says, I'm a slave to my big brother Jesus. How many of you would say that about your siblings? (laughs) Not me. James loved it, though. In John 8.34, Jesus tells the unbelieving Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. You are driven along by the wind and the waves of your inner passions, and you're an absolute slave to them, he says to the Pharisees. And he uses the analogy of a slave and his master to make the point that a slave obeys his master because he belongs to him. Slaves have no will of their own. They are literally in bondage to their master. And when sin is our master, we're unable to resist it. But by the power of Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we gain this new capacity to overcome the power of sin. In Romans 6, it says, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So when we say that we have found freedom in Christ, we mean two things. One, we've been freed from the consequences of our sins. Oh, we were in darkness and the shadow of death. We were locked up in a dark, desperate, horrific place. And he's busted us out of the joint. We're free. Like Billy Hayes arriving at the airport. I'm not in a Turkish prison anymore. I'm free. And it also means that we've been freed from our old nature. Whereas before, that was my master. That was what governed me and drove me along. I have been made into a new creation. I've been given a new nature in Christ. I have a new growing desire to be like the God who saved me. And this is what motivates me. This is what governs me. I'm a slave to that now. So in Christian circles, we talk a lot about being saved and being set free. But living as we do in a post-Christian era, we can no longer take it for granted, I don't think, that other people understand what we mean when we speak in this way. So let's make it real clear, crystal clear this morning, that when we say we've been saved, what we mean is that we've been saved from God. I don't think most people put it that way or think about it that way, but if you're familiar with my teaching, I like to frame it in this way. I think if you ask most Christians what they've been saved from, they would probably say something like, I've been saved from my sins or saved from death. But I think very few would actually answer, I've been saved from God. But really, fallen man doesn't have a sin problem so much as he has a God problem. Your sins are only a problem because God is righteous and holy. I think people get very uncomfortable when I say you've been saved from God. (laughs) I could see it on your faces even now. But it's nevertheless true. We've been saved from God, by God, and for God. The story of the gospel is a God who is righteous and holy 
and just, who saved us from his wrath and judgment by taking it onto himself. Guys, this is an unbelievable thing. Hebrews 12.29 describes God as a perfect consuming fire of righteousness. According to Scripture, the day of Christ's return will be a day of judgment and wrath against all unrighteousness. And apart from Christ, Ephesians 2 says that mankind are objects of wrath. Every part of us is polluted by sin. So when we say that we've been freed, we mean in part that we have been freed, brought out from underneath the reality of that wrath, which is surely coming to all humanity. That terrible reality is no longer hanging over your head if you have put your trust in Jesus for salvation. You've been saved by God from the consequences of our sin. But there is a second part to this that most non-Christians really struggle to grasp, and that is this idea in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Human beings commit sins because they're sinners. Scripture teaches that since Adam first sinned in the Garden of Eden, all of his descendants, every person ever born, has inherited from our first mom and dad a sin nature. We cannot help but sin because it is our nature to do so. A bird does not have to be taught how to build a nest or keep its eggs warm. It's the bird's nature to do those things. And in the same way, humans do not have to be taught to be selfish or to love wickedness. It's our nature. It comes naturally even to babies. However, in the beginning, mankind was not created to be sinful. We were designed by God in His own image. We were designed to live in fellowship with our Creator, but because of our sinfulness... Habakkuk 1.13 says that we cannot enter into the presence of God because of our sin. Therefore, we cannot live out of our design and all of our neediness, which was God-given in order that our longings and needs might be perfectly and wonderfully met in Him, are now horribly unsatisfied in our own efforts. Human beings feed their God-given appetites with the worst sort of spiritual junk food. And they stagger around, starving, weak, malnourished, homeless, and longing for the home that was forfeited in the garden, where all of our God-given appetites were satisfied perfectly in Him. And when Jesus died on the cross, He took upon Himself all the sin of the world and made it possible for you to come home and to be free and satisfied. That's what becoming a Christian feels like, at least in my own experience. It's like coming home. By taking the punishment for our sin, Jesus canceled the sin debt that each of us owes God. He also reversed the curse of our old natures, which keeps us enslaved to sinful passions and desires. Before a person meets Christ, he or she is enslaved by that sin nature. And at the moment of conversion, they are given... Not perfectly all at once, but by degrees, as we put off the old man and put on the new through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we're given a new nature that has been freed from sin. 
And that's what we mean when we say that we are now free in Christ. Romans 6.14, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. To be free from sin means that those who have made Jesus the Lord of their lives are no longer enslaved by sin. We have the power through the Holy Spirit to be obedient to God's commands. And as it relates to this idea of freedom, in addition to having the capacity for greater obedience, we are also given through the Spirit new passions and longings and a desire to be more and more like the God who saved us. So that's the story. And when we come to this place in Romans, I'm sorry, in Psalm 107, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High God. That is true for everyone who has ever rejected the God of the Bible. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. But then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. My story, and yours too, is that one of the doors that he burst apart was the door into my own heart. I'd walled myself up in there. I had no interest in God coming in and being Lord over that place. (laughs) And God broke through those bars. God burst the door into my own heart. He kicked it in completely, utterly. And he overwhelmed me with his grace and his love. It is the love that made me free, even when I didn't have the wisdom to realize I was a slave. (laughs) Have you guys ever been in a place where your eyes had become so habituated to the darkness that you forgot you were in the dark even, kind of? I think that's true for a lot of people in this world. I just don't even know that I'm lost in darkness. But Jesus knew, and he came and got me out of that place. And I'm so grateful that he set me free. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Father, I can't brag about my freedom. I had nothing to do with it. God, my mind was so clouded. I was, so, I was born in slavery to sin. It was all I knew. But God, you looked upon humanity, fallen humanity, all of us sinners with compassion and love, even when we did not have the wisdom to know that we even needed you. Father, Psalm 107 says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and you are. God, you have been so good to us. We spurned your counsel, we rebelled against your word, we chose sin over you, we surrendered and gave away what was eternal to lay hold of what is temporary. God, we were foolish and wrong. We were stupid. 
God, we just really behaved in ways that boggle the mind. We richly deserved wrath. But God, when we cried out to you in our distress, you did not shower contempt on our prayer. You didn't come to us with I told you so's. God, you you sent Jesus. God, you gave us freedom. Even when we chose another over you, you brought us back. You restored us to our place as your children. Father, you are so good, and we are so grateful. We thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. God, you've brought us out of a dark, terrible place. And you have given us a heart of love for righteousness. And Father, we are still struggling to put off the old man and to put on the new. We're struggling to become more and more like Jesus. But God, that's what we want. Freedom is doing what we want and you are what we want. God, help us more and more to be like you. And to walk in the midst of these days in this place as an honest reflection of who you are. God, help us as your church, the body of Christ, to make Jesus visible in these days in this place. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.